Hey everyone, I am Julie Gunlock, the Director of the Center for Progress and Innovation at the Independent Women's Forum, and today I'm going to be talking to David Clement. He is the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center. Hey there! Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to have you on. Uh, before joining the Consumer Choice Center, which is a great organization, you all should definitely follow Consumer Choice on Twitter. I think you're on Facebook. I'll let you kind of give all the contact information in a minute. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of your work. Um, as a mom, you guys uh, do a great job of reassuring me as a consumer. Um, so before joining the Consumer Choice Center, David was a research assistant to the pit. Canadian Research Chair in International Human Rights. David has been regularly featured on the CBC, Global News, the National Post, Globe and Mail, and various other major Canadian news outlets. I love Canada, so welcome from Canada. Um, recently, David wrote a report, a really great report. I urge all of you to read it, explaining the difference between hazard and risk. I'm not kidding you. This is a really big issue, a really big problem within the regulatory world um, and something that a lot of people don't really understand the difference. So he examined how a hazard-based regulatory approach, um, he looked at, at, that re at that regulatory approach in four areas of manufacturing and how that approach uh, will mean fewer choices for consumers, lower quality products, and higher prices. So welcome, David. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your kind words about the report. <laughs> it really is a great report. And the other thing is I am um, I find this actually a confusing issue. I mean, I write on, on these issues and I write on regulations. Um, I actually do find it confusing. And one of the best parts of this report were your, were your graphics. You had a bunch of graphics in there. So I have to tell yep. you, like, sort of a you know, sort of someone who struggles a little bit with this issue, and I'm sort of embarrassed by the fact that I struggle with this issue, that was helpful, so like the graphics. Um, well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate it's, it's one of those things where um, it's totally fine and reasonable to be apathetic or maybe be uninformed on a lot of these big policy discussions in regards to hazard and risk. Um, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, people are busy, and so my goal was just to try and break down where we've maybe lost our way on the on the policy front and how we handle whether it be chemical policy or even cannabis policy. It really applies across the board, and so um, I'm happy to hear that the way in which we approach this helped uh, help make it maybe a little more digestible than than some long-winded um, scientific uh, peer-reviewed journal or something like that. Gosh, you know, I, I don't, David, are, are peer-reviewed journal articles, are they long-winded or hard to read? Not, you, you're not serious, right? <laughs> yes, well, look, they certainly are. <laughs> well, I will tell you one thing that IWF is known for, and I think that you are also known for, especially after this report, is taking really complicated issues. We Every month we, we issue a policy report, a policy focus, we call them policy focuses, where we look at an issue and instead of, you know, having a 30-page white paper, it's a six-page paper, we include talking points, we include, mm -hmm. we actually include graphics, we may actually uh, uh, steal that from you. But it really is important because I think you and I can agree, like, people are busy, they're not necessarily in the industry that we're in, and so they may not have an opportunity to look about this or look at these issues. But let's get right into it, okay, into the mm -hmm. support. What is the difference between hazard and risk? And I'll say this. I think those words 
in many cases, people interchange them. They just like they say them, and they don't even think that these actually are different words. What what is、mm-hmm. the difference? So a hazard, in the simplest terms, is when something can be dangerous.、Um, but a risk is a hazard multiplied by the exposure.、Um, and I'll give you a very、uh, funny example. Uh, one that really irritated me when I saw it, both headlines in Canada and the United States, and the headline was, "Cheerios contains cancer-causing herbicide," and I can only imagine the havoc that would wreak on on, on parents who are、yeah. regularly buying Cheerios. So when you see that, that indicates that if I eat that that product,、um, I'm going to be in danger.、Mm-hmm. Um, But how we calculate risk as opposed to hazard, which is if something could be dangerous. So risk, as I said, is hazard times exposure. And so if you look at that particular example with Cheerios, I think you would have to eat more than your body weight in Cheerios a day for something like 30 years in order for you to actually for the product to actually pose any serious risk to you or any risk at all. Yeah.、Um, And so, when that's missing out of the discussion, or that's missing、um, in regards to the headlines or how the media covers a particular story, that gets that that sends a wave of confusion、um, through the market, and it often leads to really bad policy responses from government. Because, I mean, I can understand if you're a congressman or congresswoman, you're sitting there. And、uh, and a headline like like that comes along your desk, comes over your desk. You're probably going to want to do something about it.、Um, but when you dig a little closer and you actually look at the risk assessment of some of these more egregious headlines, really the first sentence of it should be, "But don't worry, because you'd have to eat your body weight of Cheerios every day for 30 years in order for this to be a problem."、Uh, unfortunately, it isn't. So. That was part of the reason why I wanted to parse this out for readers. It's just making sure that it's known that if we look at things from the hazard perspective only, and we ignore risk, well, then we're going to have a lot of really bad policy made, and that's going to restrict the products that we like, the new products that maybe don't even exist yet, and it just really creates a, a long list of. Bad externalities. Let's talk about those that sort of idea of of not considering sort of exposure a、mm-hmm. little bit more.、Um, years ago, I, I I actually wrote about this example in my book. I I wrote because I was a young mom and.、Um, or rather, I was not that young, but I had young kids, and but they were very little. And you know, I I put a baby pool out in the backyard, and I I put the hose on, and they you know they drink from the hose. And I'll never forget George、um, Stephanopoulos was on. He was sort of subbing in. I don't know for who, and he said, you know, it was the nightly news, and said tonight a, a very disturbing report about how garden hoses. You know, are made with plastic, right? Oh my gosh, they're not straw. I thought they were straw. Like, what are you talking about, right? And he said, and you know, and of course, it was one of these activist organizations that sent you know a, a, a portion of a garden hose out to be analyzed, and oh my gosh, it has plastics in it and has all these chemicals in it. And I honestly, I wrote about this. I thought 
George was going to burst into tears. He looked so upset, right? And so what I wrote about in my book is, is first of all, um, the child would die of water, a, a water overdose in order mm-hmm. to get a toxic dose of that plastic, that whatever mm-hmm. chemical it was, okay? And there's a million animal chemicals in a plastic hose, right? And um, so they would, they would have to drink so much that their stomach would explode or they would die of, you know, water overdose. This yep. never came into the report, okay? And then, so the cost, of course, and, and by the way, this was about 15 years ago, it launched a thousand hose companies, you know, safe hoses, right? I mean, there is, like, actually a market for this stuff, right, for very nervous parents. And all yep. I think about was all those moms out there whose kids are enjoying a summer day, running around, you know, in their diapers and, like, you know, outside and taking a sip of the water and the mom freaking out and ruining that moment and being nervous. And there are costs to this that go beyond because, of course, this cottage industry sprung up of expensive natural hoses and all of this. Probably hose manufacturers, I mean, we might laugh at this, but there are costs, you know, associated with this kind of stuff. But there's this unmeasurable cost, a cost that's really hard to measure about how it scares people and it ruins days and it makes you know moms go out and buy more expensive products when they don't, don't need to so I think when you take this and you don't know the difference and you don't include exposure into that it's really it really trickles down to these very basic happy things um, yep. yeah you know I, I, I think that there I think that when you when you think of it in those terms you realize there's a lot of cost to this kind of stuff. Yep, and, and we're seeing that play out right now in regards to the debate over PFAS, which are what I man-made chemicals. And there have been some legitimately scary examples, um, criminal examples of where there's been dumping from where these chemicals are used in the manufacturing process, and that's like really terrible. And if if, if someone is caught doing that, they they need to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. But then what happens is you have someone like John Oliver dedicate a 25-minute segment to how all of these almost 5,000 chemicals need to be banned, uh, which when it's framed in the way of using one really terrible example and then advocating that all of these chemicals be banned, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what is the actual risk? So we need to, one, remove if there are instances of dumping, but where are these chemicals used? Um, so, I mean, one very prominent example, uh, which we recently at the Consumer Choice Center spoke with um, cardiothoracic surgeon and Congressman Larry Bouchon about, is that these chemicals are used to make things like heart sense and very vital uh, pieces of medical equipment, which when used in that way pose no risk at all to human health. Uh, they're obviously a net benefit because they're being used to save lives. Uh, and so in, in chatting with him, because obviously he would know the medical world far better than I, I do, he just explained, like, if, if, if you're going to get rid of these chemicals being used in medical devices, it's going to have a horrific impact on access to the things that save people's lives. And, and for what? Because the, the for what answer is, well, this does nothing in regards to the instances of, of bad behavior, let's say, on the industry side. But what it does do 
is it makes it a lot harder to treat whatever ailment you have, whether it's something trivial like getting a hernia uh, fixed, like the mesh that goes on that, or something more serious like a heart surgery. And so um, these policies, when we take them to the extreme and we remove any type of risk assessment, really lead to heavy-handed policy that just make ordinary people, um, in that instance, obviously have less access to high-quality medical equipment, but um, as you can imagine, it's a long list of, of products uh, where these chemicals are used. That's obviously just one of them, but there, there is a long list, most of which don't pose any risk to human health yeah, and yeah. how they're currently used. You know, you talk about PFAS as, as a, sort of this right now darling of the activists. You know, there's a doctor named Sunday. I think. I can't remember his first name. I actually looked him up before this podcast. Isn't it rude to look at my phone while I'm on, on with you? Leonardo Tristenday. Um, and he's, I think, at um, New York University or somewhere. He's, he's a respected um, medical official and researcher. Well, I think... In certain circles, he's respected. But he is one of these activists, um, uh, scientists. He recently came out with a study which, you know, it, it, it doesn't even matter that it's peer-reviewed because he gets it in, like, the Daily Mail and a bunch of other publications where it goes viral. And they always, Sir Sunday is known for these studies that say, millions will die, <laughs> right? Or, like, but then he doesn't mention, okay, well, what he's saying is millions will die or could die or might die. It's very Greta thunberg You know, it's like, yep. the world is, like, the world is falling apart. And it's all because of these, you know, these chemicals, these man-made chemicals. But what he does not, and what's always absent is some of the, you know, because he just says they're, they're just laying around. They're just, like, there's no reason for them. They're just in there, and they're just, like, to kill people. But they never mention these products, like you mentioned, um, you know, uh, heart stents and other things. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's a big, um, there's a big push now to, you know, any single-use plastics to get rid of those. Well, you know, single-use plastics are, are a miracle. They used to be, you know, to be able to keep things very clean. Hospitals really need single-use plastics, you know, and, and you, you know, you used to do human rights. I'm sure you understand the uses in some of these developing nations where single-use, like little shampoo packets or, you know, mm -hmm. things that can be bought in smaller amounts and water, for goodness sake, you know, in water bottles. Um, and so there, you never hear the good uses of these things or the really, you know, terrible consequences of getting rid of these things. Um, yep. You know, so, you know, I think, I think that's part of that is these scientists wanting to get these headlines and wanting to get more funding. What is, why do these scientists do this? Why do they scare people? Why do they, and, and they want to, they want to keep us ignorant. Why your report is so important is because they want us to not understand the difference between risk and hazard. Um, yep. You know, why is that? What motivates these people? Uh, I think I think they probably come from a good place because obviously we can highlight examples of where something is actually quite dangerous. But they make the they make the false jump from we've highlighted one instance of where this is problematic and let's say it shouldn't be used in this product anymore. But then they forget to extrapolate that out and say, okay, well, what actually happens if we go all the way with this? I mean. Another example, which I'm sure every listener uh, of your show um, would relate to, because there are 275 million of them in the United States, and that's smartphone users. So, again, the example with PFAS is that these, um, these chemicals are used to, in the production process for your smartphone, 
things like moisture control, heat transfer properties that make sure your cell phone doesn't overheat and explode. Those are all really good things. The cell phone in your pocket isn't going to um, get you sick or, or, or have any negative health externalities for you because of the way in which those chemicals are used in the production process. And so we have to say, okay, well, we may have identified that something is a hazard, but what is the risk? And in order to do that, you have to look at each use case, um, which ironically is, is what Canada is doing right now in regards to PFAS. They said, uh, I mean, I'm usually quite critical of um, the Canadian government and how they regulate things, but they basically said, okay, we're going to take two years, we're going to evaluate this on uh, a use case basis. We're going to take a clean drinking water approach, which is obviously the right way because you don't want this stuff in drinking water. Um, then we're going to classify everything and figure out what the appropriate regu regulations are. And then on the flip side, you have some very strident members in Congress uh, pushing just for, from a legislative perspective for right. a complete ban. And it's like, uh, I don't know, guys. Like, I think really you have to prioritize the instances where the risk is actually high. How do we deal with those? Um, and, and we sh certainly should. But then if there is no risk or there's limited to zero risk, um, then I think we probably have to take a more hands-off approach in how we're dealing with this. And so I, I, that comes mostly from a cost-benefit analysis and an economics viewpoint. That is something that we don't necessarily see in the scientific community. I mean, we saw that, um, not to make this about COVID because that's, everyone's talked about COVID for the last 18 months, but there are all sorts of instances where, based on very scary projections, some, I mean, if you look at Australia, they're still arresting people for walking outside without a mask. Uh, obviously, whoever is creating their policy is not doing so on any type of risk assessment. Mm -hmm. They just know that COVID is a hazard, right. and therefore they'll do anything in their power to limit exposure to that hazard. But if you ignore risk, well, then what happens is you start arresting people for not wearing yeah. a mask outside. And yeah. it's like, well, I mean, that's obviously silly. Uh, so, it's yeah, it's I think they... They, they probably come from a, from a good place because they identify something that is, is a legitimate hazard, but then they very quickly extend that across a wide range of consumer products. They don't do a cost-benefit analysis, and it's not their academic training or background to really look at that and say, okay, how do we extrapolate this? Where are the actual individual risks, and how do we address those? They usually go right to the one-yard line well, and say, hey, we're here. Well, David, uh, this is another scientific fact. You are certainly nicer than me because I'm not sure I give them as uh, as as much leeway as as you do. Your report, um, you divide it into several different areas. You talk about chemicals. We've talked about that here. Talc. That is a whole. Mm -hmm. I feel like we could do a show just alone on talc and oh, disaster. Of course, Johnson Johnson. Um, yep. uh, that that issue is is, is a, a perfect example of not understanding the difference between hazard and risk. You also talk about cannabis, and then lastly, glyphosate, which um, for those who aren't familiar with it, is uh, tr traditional. Or it's more commonly called Roundup. It's a weed killer, mm -hmm. uh, exceptionally 
uh, useful. Farmers love it. It's very useful. It's very safe, um, non-carcinogenic. I don't think you can say that in Europe, but it's been found to to be very low in terms of carcinogens. Um, and and so tell me just really, you know, give me kind of a few uh, a few thoughts on on each of the you know the sort of talc cannabis and glyphosate. What mm-hmm. is the major misunderstanding between hazard and risk on these issues on these 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 items? Yeah, so my understanding on talc is it, it came down to whether or not there were trace amounts of asbestos in the production process. Um, this is also where, which is a uniquely American um, problem, this is where tort reform or the need for tort reform merges with bad science. Yes. And so you have a jury trial trying to understand or navigate them the, with no, I mean, it's a jury of your peers. And you, and, have a jury, and you have a jury trial of someone who's like, you know, <clears throat> fighting cancer, their body's riddled with cancer, and then yep. you ha- and they say it's because of talc or glyphosate because we have the same thing with glyphosate, yep. and then you have the big industry. I mean, it's a jury trial. Who do you think they're going to, you know, the, the yeah. guy who's like got cancer says like, oh, my family. I mean, you know, this is unfair. It, it, yeah, it, it's it's a very it's a very strange way to come to some sort of conclusion that there's danger, and then obviously as that's been played out, things have been thrown out um, in regards to those claims about talc. Sure. And I mean, those are some of the more like taboo hot topics, but we see this run through government policy on other issues. So I use the example of cannabis in Canada. Um, to highlight this, and it's because the way in which the Cannabis Act is written in Canada, CBD products which contain no THC at all, so they don't get you high, there's no psychoactive element to that, they're as highly regulated as THC products. Um, and so right off the bat, you I mean, anecdotally also, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this from Canada, um, there are instances where you can get a, a, a cannabis beverage and the warning label on it will warn you about the dangers of smoking cannabis. And it's like, okay, well, whoever has done the assessment on these products obviously <laughs> either has no idea what they're talking about or just got lazy right. and, and said, right. okay, we'll, we'll just treat everything the same. And so, I, I mean, you can hemp CBD products in states who still have cannabis prohibition, have more open markets for CBD products than Canada, where it is legally recognized and federally legalized. And so, I mean, I use that as an example just because it pulls it away. I mean, chemicals can be a little more of an intimidating subject. Um, But, I mean, the same goes for for alcohol policy in some states. The same goes for how we treat uh, cigarettes versus vaping. I mean, another common common area where we get it wrong. Um, time and time again. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where, and we'll continue to add to this this report as time goes on because there are uh, countless examples of where government has got it wrong and just really had a, really demonstrated their inability to navigate and regulate based on a, a proper risk assessment. And so, um, yeah, those are, those are uh, two of the other ones. Uh, obviously, you know, we mentioned talc, um, glyphosate. I mean, the, the funny example... With, with glyphosate, uh, another one is beer. Uh, that was another common headline, both in North America and Europe, that because it's used in the, uh, on the, the, the Roundup is used on the grains when they're grown. And so the claim was that your favorite beer, the Coors Light, has 
cancer-causing glyphosate or Roundup in it. And obviously when people read that, they're scared. Um, but in order to actually have any type of serious uh, intake of glyphosate, you'd have to have 2,114 pints of beer. I'd like to in, volunteer for that study. Yeah, in, in one day. And I think, I think what would pose a, a bigger risk to you obviously, is the alcohol content, and then, too, the caloric intake yeah. uh, before you could ever get to well, a again, point. Well, again, your stomach would explode. Like, there's just, yeah. I mean, it's, just, it's impossible to even get there. It's so frustrating. I feel like, um, you know, once once you sit down and explain this to people, um, you know, they most people see what's going on here, but that's sort of the point. You have to sit down and Look, we've been talking here for 25 minutes or something, and it's you know it's it's I think people are reasonable, right? And they, mm-hmm. they kind of the, like they can kind of see what's happening here, which is why it makes me so mad. Because again, I think that we're dealing with you know moms at the grocery store who, and there is evidence of this. There are studies of people who actually may, don't choose to get fresh vegetables or or fresh um, fruit because, oh, goodness, you know, it might have glyphosate residue on it, or, oh, dear, it might be GMOs, which is another area where people yeah. don't, understand, um, yep. don't under, fully understand this issue. And so what do they do? They go to all Whole Foods, and they, they spend four times what they could if they were just buying conventional food or non-organic food or whatever. The, the point is, is that I see a lot of people making um, choices based on bad information or being frightened just because fear is an incredibly powerful uh, weapon and activists use use it really, really well. And they do affect consumer behaviors. And I think for the worst, and I think especially now in a time where in the United States and I think around the world in many cases we're looking at um, some really crippling inflation um, and extremely high costs for food. And my goodness, I my son plays travel baseball, and I can't believe how much I'm spending on gas. And you know, mm-hmm. and I'm lucky I can afford that. But that is that has been a real uh, that has been made an impact on our family budget. And so, listen, we're gonna have. I hope you'll come back and talk more about as you expand on this report. This report is great stuff. Look, guys, I, I, you know, to anyone listening, you know, sometimes these scientific issues, you know, I see the word glyphosate and people are like, you know, click. Um, but this is stuff that will help you make better decisions about consumer goods, about food, um, all, you know, all sorts of stuff. And, and, David, I really appreciate you writing this report and making it readable, making it understandable. Having those graphics <laughs> there, bright, shiny things, I like that, um, and really helping people to understand. Uh, it is a complex issue, but you've really, um, really made it understandable. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that you did this, and, and thanks to you and, and the Consumer Choice Center. Tell uh, listeners where they can read more of your writing and where they, they can find the Consumer Choice Center. Yeah, so the Consumer Choice Center, consumerchoicecenter.org. Uh, um, at Consumer Choice C on Twitter, uh, which we're obviously very active, and it's the same uh, tag for Instagram. Uh, Consumer Choice Center on Facebook. You can follow along with everything we're doing. We uh, we talk about consumer policy across the board, whether it's uh, a, gov- a local government trying to ban Uber or a national government trying to uh, restrict something else that you may like. So 
if, if having people push back against when the government tries to overregulate the things you like uh, is up your alley, I certainly encourage you to check us out. And then I am Clement at Clement Liberty on, on Twitter. Um, and so, yeah. Well, we like the Consumers uh, Choice Center so much that actually one of your colleagues, Maria Tapia, is actually a, a fellow uh, with IWF. We love what she does. She's written on she's written on glyphosate. She's written on vaping. She's written on a mm-hmm. lot of EU um, regulations. So um, uh, she, she makes us look very, very uh, in the know about it, even things in Europe. So we love Maria. And thanks again, David. Um, again, if, if you add on to this... Um, to this report, I hope you will reach out and come back on and tell us more about it. I certainly will. I certainly will. Thank you again for the time. Thanks. Well, I hope you all enjoyed that. I really do encourage you to read the report um, put out by the Consumer Choice Center. He mentioned where you can find it. And thanks again for joining us today on She Thinks. 